Welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. This is your host, Brian. Thanks again for joining me. If you're a repeat listener, if you're a new listener, thanks for joining me for the first time. I hope that I can make your time with me worthwhile. Well, as a matter of fact, this might be my favorite podcast yet. I recorded it in three different takes yesterday on my bike rides, and I think it's a real good example of me both flowing but also being grounded. Sometimes I can be very all over the place, and sometimes I can be really low. But this was an example of me actually feeling really good and talking in a way that I think is both entertaining, informative, and useful for my listeners. So, what is this week's episode? Well, it's a hodgepodge as usual. B is for biking, beholding new music, and P is for pontificating on politics, revisiting Warren versus Sanders, park golf play-by-pray and colorful commentary from a new character, and spring spelled with a P, praising the dead, and philosophizing about the meaning of money, health, and the Wim Hof method. If I can fit that all into a title, well, I've done pretty damn well. Anyway, I really do like this episode. I listened to it on my way home today from my job and found it really good. I didn't do any post-production editing because it sounded really good. I stopped this time when I recorded these, and I'm planning to do that for all future episodes so that there won't be the wind issues that came up in episode 10. However, for bonus episodes or things like that, I probably won't be so picky. You can still hear a few little wind bursts because I was outside, but mostly it's very listenable, and I think you'll find that to be the case. Okay, without any further ado, uh, please enjoy the episode. Uh, At the end, you're also going to hear Book 2, Chapters 1 and 2 from The Teacher and the Tree Man, uh, there's some good stuff in this. these two chapters. Okay, and without further ado, enjoy the episode, and thanks again for listening. Likely you can't hear that, but that is the Tone River flowing about, what? 100 feet, 150 feet from me. I'm on the hillside looking at it from the park, sitting on a tree stump that they nicely cut so it's a perfect little bench. And I'm out biking. What else is new, right? Brian's biking. Well, what else is new? Brian wants to talk about politics. Please, something else. Don't worry, there will be other topics. This might be a real hodgepodge. I might throw some politics, some fish. Fish is in Mexico right now, playing music. You never know what's going to come out. I don't even know. It's uh, two days before publishing date. All I know is that you're going to get the next book, uh, book two, chapters one and two of The Teacher and the Tree Man at the end. That's all I know. And you're going to get this, most likely. So I'm thinking as I'm biking up here, just kind of pondering. I'm listening. I downloaded a bunch of... Uh, Basically, all the songs that my Apple Music was like, what's new? Like in my the recommended for you section. And I got an album of Best Coast. Very cool. Yeah, I like them a lot. They're 
girl power rock, power pop rock band out of L.A. 2000s, 2000s, teens, I guess, 2010s, the teens. Um, and I was actually just thinking about them yesterday. Um, so they have a new album out. That's on there. Got the new Tame Impala, which I mistakenly called for years in my head Tame Impala. Until my friend Dan Jones told me, um, Brian, it's Tame Impala. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, you're right. But that's the price of being in Japan too long. You see words sometimes and you just automatically say them in, in Japanese pronunciation. Tame Impala. <laughs> Still don't know what that means. Tame Impala? Like, Impala? Is that like being impaled? Anyway, there's that. Uh, the Who? Yeah, I don't know what this Who album is. I've heard two songs. One of them was like Hero at Ground Zero. It was kind of a cool, like, Who rocker. And then now I'm listening to one that sounds like classic 60s Goofy Who. And then uh, Liam Gallagher, former lead singer of, of Oasis, his acoustic album. I think it's got some new tracks and some classic tracks. Uh, when it comes to Oasis, I've always been a Noel fan. I like his voice better. I know Liam's got the better rock voice, hard rock, or kind of, he's got that kind of, that grit, more grit to it. But... If you're going to sing with an acoustic guitar, like, Noel, Noel has a, just a nicer voice. Like, all the songs, like, Don't Look Back at Anger, all the ballad, those type songs, like, Noel sings it better, in my opinion. Sorry, Liam. You can have the rockers. Um, what else is on there? Uh, Drive-By Truckers, American. They've been around for about 20 years, I think, out of the South. Kind of, they're kind of a progressive politics, kind of the rock Southern Rock, little Skinner, little Neil Young mix. Hey, Leonard and Skinner and Neil Young can't be mixed. Hey, I'm talking about music instead of politics. What's happening? Sorry. Uh, there's one more on there, I think, that I downloaded. Anyway. And, oh, uh, Adam Lambert. A, uh, he was one of the few American Idol finalists that I actually came to like. Uh, he Because he, I remember reading an article about him and how he'd been at like Burning Man and like taking mushrooms and I was like this guy's kind of cool and then I heard him sing and I'm like wow he's got a killer voice he's kind of a pop dance uh, he actually backed up the Queen for a while I believe he did the Freddie Mercury part I mean he's got a killer voice anyway kind of more dancey stuff so it's kind of a nice mix I got going here as you can see uh, Tommy Impala her team Impala they're kind of a psychedelic rock out of Australia Perth Australia Kevin Parker that's the rundown for all you that don't know shit about music. You should pay attention. Music still rules. I have to pay attention sometimes because I, I get caught up in having a week where I'm just listening to nothing but politics or just people talking and getting in my head too much. And then I got to get to the music because music is a good way to get back in touch with the heart and the body. And now I'm out biking. Anyway, I got politics on the mind. Not too strong, but... um. I was thinking, what did it, what kicked this off? Well, I'm just going to say what I, what I remember, because I don't remember how it kicked off, but I was thinking about how back in January when Elizabeth Warren did that thing with accused Bernie Sanders, said he had said to her that a woman can't win president and like that, you know, how mad I was and how one of my friends asked me like in the middle of that, like, well, you're going to vote for her in the fall, right, if she's the nominee, and I got really mad, and I'm like, fuck you for asking that right now, kind of, <laughs> um, which I still feel, because it's like, there's a timing in life, you know, and like someone's really emotional and mad at someone. You don't ask them, well, are you going to forgive them in, in, you know, eight months? Like they're dealing with this shit right now, you know, um, right now, after what Elizabeth Warren did to Bloomberg, I hold her in high esteem. I'm like, great, Elizabeth, that's the Elizabeth Warren I loved. And not only that, like 
her whole debate, like when she was talking about like, I saw emotion from her. She was talking about meeting people who had, you know, diseases. I saw like too much. I see Elizabeth Warren getting stuck again in the head. She's a very kind of policy person, but she has a good heart. And I saw that from her in the debate, you know, um, when she was going after Bloomberg. Now, Bloomberg fans, are there Bloomberg fans that aren't being paid? <laughs> That's a question I have. Um, anyway, people who support Bloomberg or are friendly to his cause, maybe you would say she was unfair in her charges. And OK, uh, you got to have to show me why. Um, I thought she was very fair. Unlike when she went after Bernie, you know, like when she went after Bernie, it was like, OK, I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk this out a little bit. So here's the deal. So she has this private meeting in 2018 with Bernie Sanders. This is the story, right? They have a dinner at her Washington townhouse. I think that's what they said, her townhouse. And, you know, they talk about running for president and, you know, we're going to try to help each other out. We're not going to go after each other personally. Like they said, we're not going to attack each other personally, right? That was one of the things that article said, right? Okay, and then she said, and so then, so then in flash forward to early January 2020, so over a year, you know, the campaign's been going on since really like literally last February, like almost a year now. So at any point she could have said, hey, you know what, everybody, Bernie said that a woman can't be president. And I still wouldn't have believed her, but if she'd said it earlier, it would have been like, okay, I want to hear what Bernie said, you know, but by not wait, by not saying it until... The day before a debate on CNN to a CNN reporter, it all seemed rather convenient. And like she was flailing in the in the polls and looking for a way to get back in and Bernie was taking the lead. So it all seemed the timing seemed convenient. OK, in addition to that, I think I said this all before, but fuck it, I'm going to repeat myself. In addition to that, because maybe you didn't hear that episode three where I talked about this, if this was true. As a person who wants to decide who is the best person to be president, I want to know that soon. Like, don't wait a year to tell me after I've been spending a year defending Bernie Sanders. Like, if that was really true, like, if he'd really said that a woman can't be president, like, if he was that misogynistic, I'd be like, fuck, dude, what are you talking about? I don't, how, how can I trust you if you think that way about women, you know, like, okay, so why did she wait a year, you know, like and sell all of us out? Because, again, that should be some information we should have known, you know. Hey, Bernie, I can't believe what Bernie said to me last night. He said that a woman can't be president. Okay. Now, ignoring all that, the whole thing I'm getting at now is like timing really does matter in life. Timing is so important, you know. Um, and I made the comment to this friend. I was like, it felt like you were giving me a... Uh, what's the word? I was going to say addendum, and it's not addendum. An ultimatum. Like, you have to tell me right now, will you vote for her in November? And because I felt that way, I felt this pressure, like, I have to say yes. I said, fuck you, no. I didn't say fuck you. I said, fuck no, I wouldn't vote for her right now. I think I said something like, if the election was tomorrow, fuck no, I wouldn't vote for her right now. You know? If she was running, even if she was, if it was like tomorrow, like this happens, and all of a sudden, like, I get sent into the future and I've still got these anger against her and it's Elizabeth Warren versus Donald Trump. Fuck no, I would have voted for her. I would have just stayed home or voted for someone else. I would have been like, no, you know, like, no, not for what you just did. You'd lied, you know. So now here I am a month later, a month and a half later. I still 
hope Bernie wins. I still think Bernie's a better, I think he's a better person. I think that in a way, like, I think he's got more integrity than she does. So I think he's better able to, you know, be a better president, someone I can believe more than her. Um, and policy-wise, there are lots of policies I agree with him more on. Uh, I'm concerned about her kind of authoritative stance towards social media, you know. So just on the on the issues too, you know, not even talking personality. Um, and then electability. I think Bernie's more electable because again, he has more integrity. People believe him, and she's very popular with like college educated people, but not so much with people who aren't college educated. So I just you know all those factors. But if the election was today. And it was Warren versus Trump. I would vote for Warren. Fine, you know, I'm ba- I'm okay with that now, you know, because the timing, I, my emotions, and what you know happened, and I saw what she did with Bloomberg, and I was like reminded of, you know, when she had the talking about how she these people that she met have these healthcare issues. I I was reminded of yeah, she's got a good heart. She's a good person. This is who I liked four or five years ago when I wanted her to run in 2016, you know. Um, so. Yeah, I'm back to being able to support her. Like she's my number two still. She's always been, you know. I've I, I liked Yang and I, I Tulsi was always kind of my number two, but I feel like she's still ten years away from that possibility. I still think Tulsi Gabbard might be president someday, folks. I still think it's possible because she actually she's a lot more groundbreaking than a lot of people give her credit for. She got knocked out by the military-industrial complex and the media-industrial complex. And she's kind of a little bit too... She's still got some learning to do about how to manage those waters. But you watch. Tulsi will be around. If, if America's still around as a country. <laughs> it's not a laughing matter. Maybe it is. I don't know. Anyway, it's beautiful out today. I'm headed up toward the park golf area. But I don't think I'm going to play park golf. I think I'm just going to stop and podcast and eat and chill. Today's a chill day. i got to meet Harada Sensei. I'm playing park golf on Monday with friends. So, I don't think I need to do that. Anyway, beautiful day. Don't know if you can hear the birds. There are some birds chirping. It still looks wintry. I'll take a picture. Maybe this will be my screenshot of where I'm sitting here. The river is very uh, pretty. Like, it's kind of a emerald green, kind of a soft blue... Uh, got some brown in it but it's definitely got a green in the white caps of the rapids but the trees are still not you know they're still wintry gray looking but it's really sunny there's no wind today anyway i'm gonna head up that's 12 minute little clip got some music got some politics and i'm gonna plan on now i'm not gonna do any more recording as i'm biking unless for bonus episodes because that wind issue like it wasn't even windy that day the last the episode 10 it was just me, the, the fact of me moving, like, puts wind into the speaker. Anyway, hopefully this one sounds good. So, all right, I'm going to go. And that's your politics and music post, or post. See, I'm still too much of a blogger. I always get the lingo mixed up. Segment. All right, off I go. This is Brian Winchell here. I'm standing here watching some park golf. Going to narrate a little bit. We're looking above the A course. Nobody's really coming right now. We've got two guys hit short on A6. Here's the approach. Looks pretty good. Oh, right to the hole. Is that in? Oh, he just missed it. Nice approach there. Going to set himself up for the bird. 
over on three we had three people go too far and oh a nice little putt nice not nice in looks like saved the par here comes this guy on the approach on six there's a lot going on lots to watch probably should stay in one hole here's the approach went too far oh that's gonna be a tough birdie don't know what accent this is little australian mixing it up southern hemisphere hemisphere some people coming out down one I'm really looking forward to watching these guys play seven, and I probably should go. Not in a big hurry. I just got some something better to do besides watching people play park off. Over on three. Nice approach. Up to the top. Top of the heel. Oh, that's four. Sorry, four. Okay, we're getting over to seven here. We have our two. We're going we're gonna to concentrate on seven. Here they come. The guy leaving six right now is taking a sweet-ass time taking score. And if you think this is good podcast material, well, you're crazy. Because why the hell would you want to listen to some jerk-off narrate people playing park off in Japan? Here's the shot. He's not even waiting for his friend. Good good approach. Looks good. Down the fairway of seven. Off to the left a little bit. Up the hill. Maybe roll it down. Kind of lost sight of it. Eh, yeah, looks a little short, but not too bad. He's got a birdie chance. He's just walking. He's leaving his friend behind. It's like, fuck you, dude. You're too slow. You're back there masturbating on six. Masturbation and park golf do not go hand in hand. Well, maybe they do. Never tried it. How do you know? This guy, oh, he blasted it. He blasted it on seven and goes way off to the left. Holy shit, that thing's going way down. That's one of the worst shots I've ever seen in this hole. Like, <laughs> he's beyond the bench on eight. He just came over here. I think he's mad at his friend for leaving him. It's like, dude, I'm masturbating here. What am I supposed to do? Hadn't even, hadn't even busted my nut yet. Got blue balls. Now you make me miss. And now the guy goes up and shoots his shot and right for the soul misses it. Getting up with a fucking bogey. That's right. This is park golf, as it is should be announced. Profanity included. <laughs> he goes up. He's just hitting away. Oh, he might not even get a double bogey. He's going. He's going now. Set himself up for a shitty chance for a bogey. And these cunts are way far on, on par on hole one. Don't even know what the hell's going on here. Can't even see the hole. The guys, the approach. These old guys are fucking around. Bunch of jokers. That guy just got a, bo a bogey. He's going to walk off without his friend again? Or is he going to let his friend bust his nut? These people sometimes don't know how to have any etiquette. That's etiquette. Oh my god, I'm recording. <clears throat> you got a banana? You need a banana? There's a horse behind me. There's actually there's actually a horse. I was such out of character. There's a horse for a farm. I heard him make a noise a minute ago. This cunt just keeps walking away from his friend. His friend just putting in. We must not like each other. That's Japanese for you. You play park off with someone. You don't even like them, but you can't play by yourself because Japanese don't do things by themselves. They're Japanese. They don't do things by themselves, so you got to play with someone you hate. But you walk away from them. You want to just play by yourself? That's what I do. This guy hits it. The approach. Am On eight. Eh. Not bad, right up the fairway. A little short of the green, not bad though. Okay, here comes the people on a two. I got a good, the best view of two. This was hit a little too hard. Might be under the sand trap. Into the sand trap? Just into the sand trap. Yes, that's great, good fun. Comes a jogger, he's wondering what I'm doing. Recording the podcast here. This guy goes short. He got stuck in a little bit of a, a grass trap. The other guy on eight, his friend. Not so great. Those two guys aren't that good. 
Here comes a bouncing blue ball on the two. This looks pretty good. Good speed. Good speed. Ooh, good pace. That's going to be right on the green. Got a chance for an eagle. Yep. About mm, three meters away. Direct. No uh, no slope. We'll finish this up in a minute. Nobody wants to hear someone announcing Parkoff for five minutes. But you're hearing it on this week's BNP round. P is for Parkoff. Never thought of that. I'm biking and I'm parkoffing today. And I'm talking in accents that keep changing. Here comes a woman. Nice orange ball. It's a pretty nice. A little short maybe on the two, but just under the green. She's got a long, maybe a long birdie putt. Probably about mm, yeah, 14.2 meters. Don't ask me to translate that. These guys are looking up here. <laughs> they know I'm announcing them. All right, what the fuck? I'm kind of known out here now, but what the fuck? I'm talking like Yasuo. Yo, what the fuck? We'll leave here after these four of them. So one guy's in the sand. One guy's got the birdie chance. One guy's... Oh, this guy's short. The guy, the first guy. The first two. Second one. Here's the approach from the edge of the rough. Eh, he didn't give himself a great approach there. It's going to be a tough shot for a birdie. you got to get a birdie on two or you're not playing it very well. Two is a hole that statistically is one of my best holes. I think they're noticing that I'm watching. <laughs> I'm watching. I'm now I'm talking Irish. Got to have a lilt. Out of the sand and onto the green. Gonna be a tough shot for a buddy. Hmm. They got a chance though. They're gonna be shot, but tough, but they give him a chance. And now they're stopping and talking, because they're like, this guy's talking. <laughs> the guy's gotta rake the sand. Not sure why they're stopping and talking. The wind is picking up. Probably gonna have to do some editing. Come on. So they're gonna keep us out of five minutes. You gotta finish your fucking hole. What are they doing? Oh, the woman's, the woman's taking a shot. This is a long shot. Is it in? Oh, she just missed it. Good approach, but she's got a good chance for a pretty easy birdie. That was well done. She's playing the best. Here's the second guy. Going for his birdie. He missed it. He missed it, folks. I think I'm making a miss. There's pressure. People are up there announcing, especially in an accent. You got a paw. The yoga got a paw. Orange birdie. Orange one with the birdie. Here comes the guy from the, the sand for the birdie. They're letting the eagle guy go last. That's probably good. Oh, he just missed it. He's going to have a paw. He had a long paw. Well, this guy just comes up and winds up and hits. Doesn't even take his time. He's sitting there taking forever talking. Doesn't take his time. And this is his fucking eagle shot, folks. That should have been an eagle. I got to go. There's some bad, bad park off. I'm going to do better than him. I got to go. That's park off announcement from you. My name is Brian Wincher. I'm from Australia by way of South Africa. Madagascar. Madagascar, as we call it down there. Adios. Springtime. The Grateful Dead. You can start going a little slower in springtime because it's warming up. That is Ro Jimmy from 1974, February 23rd, this week's Dead Pod. One of the original podcasts that I first listened to. And I believe John Larson was to thank for that. I believe he's the one that turned me on to that show. I've heard this show before. It's one of the Winterland series shows from 74. 
74 is probably, well, it's one of my favorite areas of dead for sure. I prefer it to 73, the wall of sound. And uh, well, 73 is good too, but 74, just the quality of the playing and the tape, the quality of the recordings is really good. Song selection, you start getting, you get some Sugar Magnolia action. And this second set here, it's like over two hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> the professor was quite excited about how long this one was. So just a lot of good, a long part of, a lot of Grateful Dead from this night. That's a terrible impersonation. Anyway, I'm sitting here in a field just south of Yoshioka Onsen. And last year at this time, well, not at this time, but on May 3rd, my son's birthday, I sat in the same field, a little further up and under a tree, because it was May. And right now I want to be in the sun, but once I get to May, I, I tend to be more about getting the shade, but I was in the sun enough that day. Anyway, uh, stopped, I was listening to some uh, Dead & Company that day, Dark Star, and uh, yeah, it was a good day. So on the way back here, I was like kind of eating at my, I had an onigiri, the rice, just call it a rice sandwich, Americans. Basically, it's a thing of rice with seaweed around the side and you got your interior and I almost never eat them by my own, on my own volition, my own volition. I knew this guy in drug treatment named Jeff and I came here on my own volition or I'm here on my own reconnaissance. <laughs> Those were his two phrases. He was goofy. He reminded me of Les Claypool from Primus. Um, and he ate like a squirrel because he, he was a guy. He liked his crack cocaine and he was really, he talked very fast. And <laughs> he had been in treatment. Boy, I'm getting myself distracted. <laughs> he had been in this treatment center before and like there was a train track that went by the treatment center and like I guess he, the last time he'd been there, he just one day the train was coming, he hopped on the train and rode back to Seattle. <laughs> so this time, he, but like, this time he like, he was like, yeah, I need to just drop. So I came here on my own volition. Like that time the court had ordered him to go. So he didn't want to quit yet. <laughs> so he got on the train. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you can meet a lot of characters in treatment centers. There are some people. I'll tell you what. Anyway, so I, I was eating my onigiri on my bike and I'm like, why don't I just stop? record a little bit more see what I talk about P is for spring see that book psychology starts with a P so P is for spring 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 PS PRNG it's not yet spring I know but this is the weekend it really does feel like it's coming it's coming and my my own mental state also feels like I just went through the last test of the winter not to say that spring won't bring its own tests but um this is a challenging winter for a lot of people i think <clears throat> it's a heavy couple of weeks started in 2020 um feels like it's been taking forever i know a lot of people have said that january felt like it was like the longest month in history um and then people said oh february's going faster but it was like that was like five days into it like well yeah but now here we are it's february 22nd and i'm thinking back to the start of february and i'm like i guess it didn't seem that long ago i don't know time right now is really hard to hard to measure but january definitely felt long <clears throat> february has felt long to me just because i went through like not quite a little bit over a week i think it was like eight days <clears throat> three in particular days that were just like 
super of last Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Although I say that, and then I think about it, Saturday I did do that job. I did an all-day job that day, and I managed that all right. But um, I can almost feel like the people I worked with didn't even notice that I was down. But anyway, um, Sunday was tough. And uh, Monday, I'm trying to remember Monday. Yeah, anyway. I'm a pretty good at compartmentalizing it, so when I'm feeling down, I can, uh, this guy's walking by and looking at me. I'm hoping in the future people will start finding it more common just to see someone talking into their phone. I think John Larson would be mad about this because I'm holding the phone like he complained about a couple years ago about the Southeast Asians, how they hold the phone, they talk, and they're talking. I'm holding it the same way, like... But it's because the freaking microphone is down here, and I think it records better this way. Maybe it doesn't. Let's see. I'll change it. Let's see if the quality... I'm going to change where I'm talking, like, facing my phone. But that's weird, like, if I'm staring, like, right at the screen. Like, there's nothing, no reason to stare at it. I don't know. I'm trying to make the recording... Honestly, like, I'm worried because I'm kind of an... I'm not an audio, like... I'm an audiophile. Definitely, I love the sound of things. I love sound. Um, and I do have, like... Some people I knew would listen to like Fish or Grateful Dead shows that were just like really poor sound just because they wanted to hear a certain version of a song. And to me, it's like there's so many things that sound good. Maybe the version won't be as good, but the sound is so much better that like I don't want to listen to something that sounds like crap. And so episode 10, where you had all those wind spots, like I edited out. I spent like two hours editing out a lot of that shit. Um, probably overdid it in a way because there were a couple of clips of cuts that I made that didn't sound as natural as I want them to. But point is, is I, I work hard on this podcast, folks, and but when I'm out biking and like I, I'm talking about something that I think is good and I'm in a flow, but then there's this like <sighs> noise of the wind, I feel bad about that because it doesn't sound good on the ears. And I also know like when I re- do these recordings from like music or other podcasts, when I just use this app that I'm using, like it doesn't sound that great. Like Benjamin Dixon's thing, like if you listen to his podcast directly, like he's got a really good microphone and he's got a great voice, he's got a really good timbre to his voice. Um, but through the app, it sounds more tinny, not as good on the ear. Um, that's why I'm going to try to keep those clips like at most two minutes long of someone else, you know. I don't technically know if, I mean, I don't. Eh, I hate all this stuff about, like, what you can play and, like, there might be a copyright. Like, I'm, you know, like, I try to, I do everything in the spirit of, like, here is a great piece of music or a great podcast. Please listen to it. I'm trying to help promote them. You know, it's like free advertising. And that's kind of the whole, like, it's the taper culture from the Grateful Dead where they're like, yeah, of course people can tape our shows and then spread them around. It's free advertising for us, you know? Um, I come from that attitude. I don't come from this idea where like everything should be copyrighted and you got to pay me money to use it and all this shit. Like, fuck that, man. Information should be a lot freer than that. So, um, but I do want to share it where it sounds good. That's my point. Anyway, I am going to go meet up with my former colleague, Mrs. Harada, Harada Sensei. Um, and she's really cool. She was the first English teacher I worked with my first year. Uh, first one I met, she came down to the city hall in one of the first week or so I was here. And she's like, who's going to be teaching at Yanaka? And I was like, that's me. And uh, 
she's really good at English, like just naturally, I think has a talent for foreign languages. And also it's her hobby. She likes movies and music, foreign music. So since she was a kid in the sixties, you know, was always interested in English, not just as a profession, but like, because she was interested in world culture, she's a traveler and stuff. So she's really cool. Anyway, so I meet her about once a month now, and uh, I I used to feel a little bit kind of like, it's kind of weird, like, you know, because she asked me, can I meet to practice English and stuff, and I'll help her with, like, she used to write these speeches for this Toastmasters club, you know, I'd help her edit it and stuff, and, you know, she asked me, sometimes she teaches other people, like, she teaches these nursing students, and she has to translate, like, these freaking really hard you know, medical texts that the nursing students have to read. And it's like, even for an English speaker, it's hard. It's all in medical ease. And, uh, you know, so I'll help her with whatever she wants. But basically, we just get together and chat for like, you know, technically it's one hour and she pays me 3,000 yen. But oftentimes we'll chat for two hours. You know, I used to feel like, yeah, maybe it's kind of weird. Like, we're just getting together as friends talking. Maybe she doesn't need to pay me. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, I think she's probably she has the money and she also probably see you know like it's a way she can kind of help my family you know it all works out so now uh, money's weird you know whenever you put money in the situations it's weird you know um but i'd be happy to meet her you know without the money but it's nice to have a nice meeting with someone and then leave with more money in your pocket too you know so it all works out i like to think it's the uh universe given back to me because I do do jobs sometimes like that are really well like a lot of money most people we all do jobs sometimes that are really hard and challenging we're not probably not getting paid what we should be getting paid I mean what are, what are people worth really you know like we pay people millions of dollars to like hit freaking balls in a little tiny hole in the ground you know or that's a golfer you know or hit a ball that's being thrown at you by another guy so the guys with freaking horse shit on their hands can try not to catch it and you try to hit it over a fence and people can catch it and bring it home and <laughs> and if they get it signed then 10 years from now they'll get paid money for that i mean i just think about it, like all the shit we pay money for like if you really start thinking about it like all the money it's like what is that what is anything worth you know so even when i've tr i'm gonna have have to face this a lot like how how do i charge for my the things i put out there you know and, like, what's a fair price? Um, I think I'm going to be shocked in America. I read the other day that, like, inflation since, like, the 90s has gone up 60% or 60% from the 90s. I'm like, like, I noticed it when I went back to the fish shows this last summer. Uh, not just buying the tickets, but, like, the, the price of stuff in the venue and, like, in the lot was, like, so different from my, still, my, my mindset is still, like, fish shows of the late 90s, you know? Where you can get like one dollar grilled cheese sandwiches and shit. Like if you show up with twenty dollars, you're loaded in the parking lot, you know. As long as you don't buy any ecstasy, you know. <laughs> that costs all twenty bucks right there, and you might not even get good stuff. But um, anyway, point is, is like nowadays, I think I'm gonna be kind of shocked. That's gonna be a challenge for me to figure out, you know. But like here in Japan, there hasn't been that much inflation since I came here, and like my job, my my paycheck now is basically the same amount of money. If not, I think it's a little, I think it's like actually 4,000 yen per month, like $40 per month less than it was when I started 15 years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then they gave us a raise in the, uh, excuse me, drinking a little, 
lunchtime chew high here. Uh, they gave me a raise or gave us all all the direct hires that have been here for four or five years or longer. I'm not sure what the date cutoff was, but last spring they gave us our first raise that I've ever gotten in 15 years, and it was like 5,000 yen a month, which you know that's great, like 45 dollars a month or whatever. Thanks. <laughs> and then the Japanese government comes along and they passed a new tax of some sort in October, and all of a sudden like. The raise equals about 800 yen a month, which is, you know, like $7 a month. <laughs> so, uh, don't ever accuse me of doing this job for money, <laughs> you know. And again, I'm not complaining. We've never, I'm never really worried about money. Um, I don't like thinking about money. That's my whole point of this little diversion is that I have trouble contemplating, like when I start contemplating money, I just have trouble understanding, like, why is this value this? Why does this person make this? Why does this person make that? Like, why do we pay teachers and nurses and people that, you know, these jobs not that much? Or people that, like, take care... Like, why do people who take care of old people, like, pay paid so little? Or why is a mother who's a work-at-home mother, why is she not paid anything at all? Well, she's paid by her husband. You know what I mean? Like, the whole thing... When you get in these arguments, it just... My mind can start spinning out of control. And they're like, well, people will say, you shouldn't have free college. I'm like, well... You shouldn't have free healthcare. What free? It's not free. Oh, it's just all so fucking <laughs> baffling to me. And that's why I think sometimes I must be an alien. Like I can't understand your human systems. Systems. All right, that's enough babbling. Go to Nakai Show for keyboard. It is one o'clock. Yes, I have to go to the Nakai Show Gako to pick up my little keyboard that I think I left there yesterday. Yes, I hope I did. All right, that's uh, that's for 15. I talked for 15 minutes. Holy shit! Look, I didn't take a breath. The Wim Hof method. I mean, actually, that is how I started to stop when I first thought to stop. I'm gonna finish with this. Wim Hof, everybody. I'm gonna put this on maybe the, one of the upcoming episodes. But what you do is you lay. I lay down. You can sit down. Like I'm sitting cross-legged right now. Here, I'll do an example. Guy riding by me. You don't need to look just because I'm talking to my phone, dude. Just keep on, keep on moving. <laughs> Not that I care, but. Cause I'm gonna do something weird here. Okay, I take my—I always take my glasses off when I do any meditation or anything like this, just because it feels better. And you breathe in through the nose, you do that 30 times. Okay, breathe in hard, out, hard, out. You don't—it's kind of a hyperventilating type thing, um, but you do it at a normal rhythm. Okay, and then when you get to number 30, I think I've talked—I've mentioned this before. When you get to number 30. And you hold it in for 15, or then, or then you blow it out on 30, and then you hold it. You don't, you don't take a breath. And he's got a little app. You do a timer, and like usually I'm like a minute and a half to two minutes that first one. Um, and then, and then you breathe, and then you take a breath in, and then you hold that for 15 seconds, blow it out, and then you do the process again two more times. And uh, that, my friends, clears up the old lungs and actually gets you. You get this little kind of buzz. Your body warms up. Warms, at least for me, it warms up my body, and then I feel a little bit like it has a similar feeling to smoking weed, to be honest with you. Like, and Wim made a comment about that. Like, it has maybe it has something to do with the endocannabinoids or something. But um, and then when you meditate, you feel like you feel energized but relaxed, just like that same kind of thing I get out of weed, right? And then I meditate, and uh, then I get outside and I breathe air, and I never wear a mask, so. That's my, my my advice to people who have trouble with hay fever and stuff. Like, love the air. Like, get more air. Like, it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's an immune system thing, I think. 
um, but you're opening up your body's ability to breathe. And I would also say, I mean, for me, it's a little hard for me to to uh, disentangle all the bike riding I do. Like, I ride my bike so much. Like, now, if I'm riding, you know, like, this month I've been riding, my average is like 35 kilometers a day. And even when I wasn't feeling energetic, I would ride that much. And it's just like, I don't even feel like I'm doing anything, <laughs> you know. Um, so that probably helps my, my breathing, too. But I don't have trouble with hay fever. I think I've only had that once a little bit but yeah i haven't been doing the william hoff all that long either though since last may so maybe it has something to do with it but my advice basically is uh get more water more air more earth more fire and i've been listening to grateful dead uh i'll leave that that comment a little bit mysterious get your four elements every day and that's it Okay, that concludes this week's episode, at least before the book, The Main Reason for the Podcast, The Teacher and the Tree Man, book two, part chapters one and two. Now I'm doing a little bit of a commentary before you hear these chapters because I just listened to chapter one and realized as I listened that I probably took for granted some of the things regarding journalism lingo that readers might not know. It's a hard thing as a writer to know how much information to include, how much to take out. On one hand, you don't want to insult the reader's intelligence by telling them too much, but on the other, you want to make sure they understand what you're talking about. Anyway, I'd like some feedback from people who listen to this. Let me know how much you understood about some of the journalism lingo and events. Also remember, I'm describing a journalism news desk in the fall of 2001. I don't know what it's like now. And in reality, I wasn't working in the journalism world in the fall of 2001. So some of these things might be a bit off base in the sense that the last time I worked for a newspaper was a year before and the last time I worked for a major newspaper was three years before. Still, I think most of it probably makes sense for the time that I'm describing. Okay. I hope you enjoy, and let me know what you think. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the BNP Round Podcast. Book 2, Chapter 1. Just the facts, please. Are you sitting down, Joe? You really need to sit down for this one if you're not already. Okay, okay, I'm seated, Joe Edwards said through the phone line to his young reporter, Mike Wilson. God, I don't even know how to say this without sounding crazy. Just give me the facts, Mike, Joe Edwards said, trying to sound as patient as was possible on a Tuesday evening in a loud newsroom with first deadline fast approaching. Well, therein lies the problem, Wilson said. The facts are real murky here. Can you squeeze 12 inches out of it? Edwards said, thinking about how little room he had to play with, considering all the ads. Nothing out of the ordinary. And, in 20 years on the news desk, he'd become all too good at not letting the lack of space get to him. Nothing a shot or two of whiskey couldn't handle. Twelve inches? Yeah, easy. More, Wilson said. This could be big, I... We've got room for twelve inches, Edward said. Yeah, okay, Wilson replied. See, the thing is, this is really outlandish stuff, but I'm just not sure who to believe. 
Slow down a sec, Edward said. Now, real quick, sum it up. Okay, apparently the two lawyers and the land use commissioner went out to the forested part of the proposed outlet mall with some local dude and his wife, and the dude, and this is where it gets murky, brought them to see some sort of a, um, man's head stuck in the side of a tree. A murder? Edwards said, loud enough that several typing reporters and editors stopped their work and looked up at him. No, no, a man's head stuck in the side of a tree. Wait a minute, Edwards said, getting a bit impatient. Why weren't you there? Uh, Dick Stein had me on police phones this afternoon. What happened to the intern? Had school, a test or something. Damn it, why can't they just get another one? A dime a dozen, after all, Edwards said, scanning the wires on his computer screen while somehow also looking for a pen. I don't know, Wilson said. Joe, what about the man's head in the side of the tree? Doesn't that warrant some extra coverage? Hey, I like ancient Northwest Indian artifacts as much as the next guy, but I don't think it makes the story that special, Edwards said, about ready to put down the phone. Uh, no, Joe, Wilson said. Maybe I wasn't clear. They said it was a man's head living in the side of a tree. Sure, Edwards said. Wilson, I don't have time for bullshit. You know that. It's not a joke, sir, Wilson said. Three of the four parties say they saw it. What about the fourth? Developer's attorney, Wilson said. Nothing to worry about. What does he say he saw? Nothing but a knot in the side of a tree and this guy Lucas talking to it, Wilson said. But three of the four people did see it and the environmentalist attorney says he saw a man's head clear as day and it was talking to Lucas. On the record? Uh, well, uh, no, Wilson said. He didn't want to be the one to confirm it. What about the judge? Well, he won't say for sure what he saw, but he's issued a one-week stay of his decision, so you figure out whether or not he saw anything. Well, we can't assume he did, Edward said. You know what happens when we assume. Yes, I know, Wilson said. I'm not in college anymore. Right, right, Edward said. So the story then is that the decision has been delayed. We know that much for sure. Keep the thing tight. We'll stick with the 12 inches. But what about the weird angle? Wilson asked. Not verifiable, Edwards said. So attribute everything. Can you fire that off to me in an hour? No response. Wilson? Yeah, I can do that, Wilson said, though his voice had lost its enthusiasm. Before Edwards could respond, he heard the phone click. Sometimes Mike Wilson really wanted to strangle Joe Edwards. Since coming to the Tacoma Post from college three years ago, Wilson had answered mainly to Edwards. Back in the 1960s, Edwards had broken into the journalism world as one of the daring reporters who traveled with the U.S. troops deep into the jungles of Southeast Asia. When he went in, Edwards always told his young reporters, he was simply an idealistic young man who thought writing and reporting could change the world. But in the jungle, the monologue went, he learned a few things. Even though you often have to pick a side to survive, one of the most important things for a young reporter to know is that no matter how much you sway to one side, you must give the appearance of objectivity. The two simplest ways to do this were to attribute controversial opinions and to stick to the facts that you could verify. After two years of spending rainy nights in muddy trenches as the sounds of gunfire and falling bombs kept sleep to a minimum, Edwards emerged fully equipped with these two hard-earned lessons, and he'd been practicing them stateside ever since. 
That was how the story finished, and when he told it, Edwards really did call it stateside. There was one skill that Edwards picked up in Nam that he never brought up in the story, drinking. While the demons weren't as dark stateside, he still fought them enough to warrant a daily dosing of alcohol. And now, more often than not, when Wilson dealt with Edwards, the portly editor was working on a buzz, usually courtesy of a two-martini lunch with one of the area's power brokers. Wilson couldn't stand how Edwards got so cozy with what Wilson considered the other side. As Wilson's favorite journalism professor used to say, don't get too comfortable with the people you're covering. Your work and sense of truth will suffer for it. Wilson figured Edwards had picked up the habit while in Nam as a matter of necessity and comfort. He could just picture a young Edwards drinking late into the night with the officers, a temporary respite from the insanity surrounding him. Still, Wilson felt this habit made Edwards afraid, afraid to ever risk offending the powerful, afraid to ever have his paper come across as biased, afraid, in Wilson's mind, to do exactly what a good journalist should do, challenge the status quo, and, barring that, at least not accept its version of events at face value. Yet, as Wilson sat down in front of his Radio Shack portable computer that he sometimes thought was so old it may have been the original portable, he knew, despite his idealistic impulses, it was not that easy. For he, too, had his reasons for staying objective and for towing the line. A wife still in nursing school, one child and another on the way, two car payments, and, just recently, a new mortgage on a small two-bedroom home in Tacoma's historic stadium district. As badly as he wanted to make this improbable discovery of an odd species his breakout story, he knew he couldn't. After all, due to the posts being too cheap and profit-driven to actually pay someone to handle the police phones, he hadn't been able to go to the forest and witness the historic event. Damn, that pissed him off. He knew he couldn't sway city editor Dick Stein, so he begged local editor Sandy Sue to let him go out to the forest because the activist's attorney, Dwayne Wilbur, had said something big was going to happen, though he didn't know what. Yet, Sue had apologized, said her hands were tied, and that Stein's decision had more power than hers, and Wilson hadn't put up a great fight, because he knew she was right, and he liked her. So instead, he had listened to an excited Wilbur spit out the events of the afternoon, and while Wilson had become thrilled at the strangeness of the story, and had thought it might even be a fun one to write for once, he had returned to reality during his conversation with Edwards. And so, as he began to type, he felt a twinge of anger and suppressed it, as he accepted the assignment. Just twelve inches. Attribute everything. Stick to the facts, Wilson thought mechanically doing his work. I didn't enter journalism for this, Wilson was telling Sandy Tsu over dinner at a local 80s retro joint known as Material World. It's just a waste of time, sometimes. I mean, there I was answering police phones for a small 8-inch blotter that... An 8-inch blotter that is one of our paper's most read features, Sue interrupted. Yes, I know, Wilson said not wanting to sound too argumentative, but still wanting to express his frustration. I know it wasn't your fault, Sandy, but just because something is read by a lot of people, that doesn't make it important. Look at all the celebrity gossip coverage, for example. Anyway, 
It's hard for me to swallow that I could have witnessed something truly incredible today, something that would have possibly given our paper some national resonance. Instead, I was putting together a blotter that basically never changes from day to day. Look, Sue said, I'm sorry about what happened. In hindsight, it's easy for me to say that Dick and I made a mistake and that you should have been out there. But before, I remember you were sort of complaining about having to go all the way to Lincolnton for what you didn't think was going to amount to much. And really, none of us could have predicted that Wilbur's big thing was going to be as outlandish as a man's head living in the side of a tree. Honestly, I still can't believe it's real. Well, I can, and I think you could too if you'd talked with those witnesses like I did, Wilson said. Neither of them sounded crazy, and the assessor has absolutely no reason to lie. Come on, Mike, you know that's not true, Sue said. What do you mean? Well, just because his job is not to take sides doesn't mean he hasn't, Sue said. I suppose, Wilson answered, but not before biting into a large, juicy hamburger that he could barely fit his mouth over. Do they really need to be so big? What? Sue said. The hamburgers, Wilson said. They are getting to the point where I almost need a fork and a knife to eat them. It's sort of disgusting. Why do you think I ordered a salad? Sue said. Touché, Wilson said. Anyway, I wonder something. I don't mean to pry, but I wonder if you sometimes get frustrated with your role at the paper. For example, for me... Sometimes I think that while I'm here, covering something insignificant like a so-called controversial outlet shopping mall, there are real events happening, real issues, out there. Name one, Sue said. She took a sip of her soda from her supersized straw, apparently finding it okay to have a drink that was as big as a boat, just not a burger. 9-11 and the response to it, for one, Wilson said. I mean, come on, that's an easy one. None of these issues all these people are squabbling over are going to matter if America is attacked again, or, more likely, if we overreact and set World War III into motion. What makes you think we're going to do that? Are you kidding? Wilson asked, surprised that Sue, who he knew was rather liberal, would believe President Bush would keep calm. It's only been one week, and the rhetoric has already gone from total shock to a desire for revenge. Give it more time, and we'll soon be attacking some Middle Eastern country, probably Afghanistan, maybe Iraq, even if they didn't sponsor the attack. Americans are constitutionally unable to turn the other cheek, even though we all supposedly love Jesus. Sue looked shocked. You're pretty bitter about all this, aren't you? Not bitter, Wilson said. Just tired of people denying reality. What's reality? Sue asked. Reality is that we Americans love war, and any excuse we have to get into one is good enough, Wilson said. Heck, I'm still not entirely sure I believe the government's whole story about what happened last Tuesday. What's not to believe? Come on, Sandy, Wilson said. You know as well as I do that governments lie. That's journalism 101. I've got no proof, but I'm also not going to just assume that the whole story we've been told is true. After all, Many powerful people within and outside of our government stand to gain from turning this event into a reason for an unending war. Yes, I suppose so, Sue said. I just have trouble believing there would be people so evil as to kill 3,000 of their fellow citizens for whatever reason. I understand, Wilson said, and I'm not saying that's necessarily what happened. 
Okay, Sue said. I'll play along. What do you think happened? I'm afraid I can't give a short answer to that question, Wilson said. Everything I think I know about the events of 9-11 came to me through the media, not my direct experience. I wasn't at any of the sites, from the Twin Towers to the Pentagon to that field in Pennsylvania. What's your point? Just that if an event is presented to me through the media, I try to be wary of it, or at least keep an open mind, because there may be more to this story than our government and media is admitting. Fair enough, Sue said, but I'm confused. Are you saying it didn't happen? Depends on what you mean by it, Wilson said, sucking on his soda as he prepared for the punchline. What I think I know is the Twin Towers came down. A hole appeared in the Pentagon, though I'm not sure how, as I still haven't seen any plane wreckage, and a plane apparently crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. I could go to all three places now and see the after-effects of these events, so I can conclude those things. Everything else, I can't be sure about. So what about the airplanes? What about them? Wilson asked. Are you saying they aren't real? I don't know, Wilson said. All I know is I saw images on TV of airplanes hitting the Twin Towers. But I've seen images of lots of things on TV. Doesn't mean they are real. What about the witnesses who were there? Witnesses? Wilson said. I don't know any of them. Any witness I am being presented with also comes to me through the media. You're pretty cynical about things, aren't you? Sue said. No, not really, Wilson said. People in my life, like you and my wife, for example, I believe in and trust. But people far away, people who come to me through the media, I'm just saying keep an open mind about them. Maybe it would be smarter to be skeptical of them. Sue was silent, so Wilson continued. I mean, it's just so strange, you know. For example, why do we spend so much of our time fighting over insignificant things like this mall? And why, if we are united, do we continue to fight about these things? Well, Sue said, we both know that this country is far from united. But that's not the issue. I think you are starting with a faulty premise. I think that local issues are what matter to people, because even though we may be hearing on the news about threats from faraway places like Afghanistan, it's the changes in our immediate environment that are most tangible. So, if they plan on putting a shopping mall in our neighborhood, that seems more important than someone playing war games and politics 10,000 miles away. Yes, that's a good point, Wilson said. I haven't thought about it that way. I guess I just want to be a part of the big picture, because I feel like if the big picture falls apart, well, all these little things won't matter. And, he added with solemnity, my work won't have mattered. That's where you're wrong, Sue said. That's what I'm trying to say. Everything you do matters. It matters to everybody you touch. And while it may not be touching the President of the United States... You just never know who it will reach. Chapter 2. Nothing But a Dreamer That evening, while Wilson and Sue were talking shop at Material World, and with Scarlet being watched by a babysitter, Terry took Lucas to Dominici's, where they celebrated over steaming plates of pasta and several glasses of wine. By the time they finished, both were reasonably drunk and garrulous. Lucas, who was drunker because Terry was driving, could feel the sparks flying back and forth between them. 
Terry's face shined, just as it had when they'd first met in a California beach bar on Grateful Dead cover band night eight years before. Lucas cherished the memory, and every time Terry's face sparkled like that, it reminded him of the original connection that had felt so strong between them. When he looked at his wife in the restaurant, he felt a tinge of regret for taking her for granted lately. You really are beautiful, he said. Rather than answer, she gave him a passionate kiss that showed him how she really felt. When they finished necking, they raced each other to their car, and Terry won on account of Lucas slipping on a dark mud slick and winding up on his behind. Both laughed deeply to the point where Lucas felt his stomach muscles complaining, but he couldn't stop, and they laughed for another couple of minutes before he realized he probably should pick himself up and get into the car before anybody from school happened to cruise by and see him acting like a drunken fool. He was trying not to laugh, and finally, while Terry was digging around her purse for her keys, he was able to contain himself because he remembered a subject he needed to talk to Terry about. What do you think is going to happen to Sylvanus now? Lucas asked, remembering that his friends in college had sometimes called him Dr. Downer for his ability to take a giddy moment and stamp it out with seriousness. Terry stopped searching for her keys and looked up at her husband. What do you think? That's just it, Lucas said. I don't know. But something, something tells me he'll be all right, but... You're not sure? Terry asked. No, Lucas said. How can I be? It may be a bit of relief to share the knowledge of the man with a few other people, but that doesn't make the situation any less strange. True, Terry said, digging for her keys again and finally finding them. She and Lucas got into the car. It still hasn't sunk in for me, she said. I haven't even really started to question it. What do you know about him, Paul? Not much, Lucas said, attempting to put the seatbelt into its latch but failing. But there is one thing. I know he badly wants to get out of that tree. Can he? Terry asked as she started the car. I don't know, Lucas said. We're trying, but I don't know if it's really working. If what's working? Here Lucas paused. This was dangerous territory. Since they'd agreed when they moved to Lincolnton to renounce drugs, how was he going to explain about the mushrooms? Well, Lucas said, smiling as he realized his plan. Larry had this crazy idea, and Sylvanus and I were desperate, so I figured, why not? We gave Sylvanus some magic mushrooms. You did what? Terry said, slamming a little harder on the brakes than she needed to. Like I said, it was Larry's idea, Lucas said, getting comfortable with the lie. He got the mushrooms and everything. I just gave him to Sylvanus. What made you think that would work? Listen, Lucas said. They may have worked. Before he took them, it had been years since he'd really felt his small human body inside the tree. But when he took them, Terry... He felt his fingers and toes moving, and he felt his whole body get cold and then hot. So he thinks he may be able to awaken his body enough with the mushrooms to break out of the tree? Exactly, Lucas said, smiling. Then he frowned. There's only one more problem. What? Again, Lucas paused. He didn't want Terry's confidence and pleasure in him to disappear. So rather than telling her the truth, that Sylvanus had asked him not to reveal him to any other humans to save the forest, Lucas simply said, He says he may not be able to eat the megadose we want to give him. Something about the nasty taste. It didn't agree with him. 
Paul Lucas wasn't a dreamer. He said he didn't remember his dreams, but he never tried. To him, the night was a time for the physical body to be restored, so that when he woke, he would be rested and enthusiastic about whatever he put his mind to. Sure, like everybody, he'd sometimes wake in the middle of the night, wondering where the strange dreams came from. Why was I just swimming nude in the South Pacific with the Russian Olympic curling team? But by morning, he would have forgotten all about it. And true, occasionally, but very rarely, he'd see something that would remind him of some nocturnal adventure from the night before. But still, these recollections were vague, and Lucas made no attempt to incorporate any of them into his daily life. If he remembered a dream, he considered it like a personal sitcom of the mind, something to amuse oneself with, but nothing more. In this way, Lucas was a creature of his culture. Sure, there were exceptions to the rule throughout American history. Folks like Harriet Tubman, who led black slaves to freedom using her Underground Railroad by way of discovering safe passages in her dreams. Or Lyndon Johnson, stating that it was a dream that gave him the wisdom and courage it took to not seek re-election in 1968. And while some were giving more credence to dreams in today's world, it was just another one of many marginalized interests for Americans to consider if they could find a spare moment. Most people said things like, it was just a dream, denying any possible message or power inherent in those dark hours, never bothering to wonder why humans are wired to dream every night. No, most Americans were too busy to pay much more than occasional attention to dreams. But after Lucas closed his eyes that night, he was going to have no choice. His dreams weren't going to leave him alone so easily. Lucas is in a forest, and the colors bleed green around the edges. Hedges block his way. He wants to go straight, but can't. The air smells like rain, and as he walks, he feels a sharp pain in his foot. A root has tripped him and sent him falling, falling, and where the hell is the ground? Down, 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 he drifts through the darkness. His only wish is that he can stop and land. His hands hit something sharp, a branch or a throne. He feels warm liquid on his hand and understands to keep his hands tucked by his side. He cries, stop, and to his surprise he does, a thud as he hits the ground. Now, towering trees surround him, and he feels closed in and wants to escape this dark, ugly place. His heart races, and through the fog at the forest's edge, he senses something something large, but he sees nothing. And then he notices the trees around him form a ring, counts them, there are twelve, and he wants to shelve the whole plan. What plan? But he can't and he won't. He has to see it through. What do you want me to do? He yells, and his voice echoes among the tall trees, and a shape flies through the air, and then, right there, ten feet up a tree in front of him, an owl lands and fixes its eyes upon him. It shakes its head side to side, side to side, saying, No, and though he wants to hide, he feels exposed as it shakes its head, No, and continues shaking until its head starts spinning, and Lucas is beginning to get dizzy, and... He woke and noticed first that his body was covered in sweat, even though it was a cool night. He squinted at the clock radio on the nightstand. It was 3.43 a.m., and Terry was sound asleep. What was that about? he thought, but even though he could see the owl shaking its head back and forth vividly in his mind, he didn't know what it meant. Just a weird nightmare, he thought, and got himself comfortable again. 
just an anxiety-induced nightmare. But as he drifted back to sleep, he could have sworn he heard a soft voice in his head saying, I don't think so, Paul. Another dream. This time he can't move, not even if he wants to. He finds himself, could it be, stuck in a tree, and he senses that he, his body, is no more. But it is more, a few hundred feet more, and he can feel every branch and needle on him, this tree, shaking with the wind. This feeling is enormous, and he knows how magnificent he is, feels it fully, all the way from the crown of the tree, way, way, way down into his roots. He can feel water carrying, life-giving nutrients through his roots, and he knows this is why he is alive. But the feeling doesn't stop there. No, he can extend himself beyond the roots, can feel the earth around him, and the other roots that give life to the other trees, his brothers that surround him, and all the plants on the forest floor, them too. He can feel his connection to them, but it doesn't stop there. A hare in the clearing below him eats at the plants, and he senses the insides of this creature, how its blood moves and how it uses these leaves it eats to defeat death and go on living. The hare hops away without a care, and he wishes to follow, still curious about this creature, but he can't. For as far as his feelings extend, and as large as he feels he is, he is too large to move, and besides, what is movement, anyway? He can only sway with the wind and try to understand his predicament, and it is only then that he feels his heart beating in his ears, and the fear of the unknown overtakes him, and he loses connection with all the life around him, an island in a sea, an unfriendly sea, just a man all alone stuck inside the bark of a 200-year-old tree.